church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? My name is Joe McLean. This is Behold the Man. Good afternoon. It is so great to be back with you this week. We're going to be diving deep into that book that I have been talking about over the past two shows called A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. And so we're going to be getting into that, and I hope that you've picked up your copy. If you haven't, I want you to stop by my website at www.catholichack.com and look for this show, Behold the Man, and there you'll find a link. And I'll make it pretty clear for you so you can pick up your very own copy. I highly recommend this book. It really is the kind of book that will help you see the sacred scriptures for what God intended them to be, a love story to his children. Starting us off on this show was a song by Sarah Bauer called Mary's Got My Back. And you can also find more information and a link to her site on my website as well, www.catholichack.com. Have you ever prayed that prayer, Mary, get my back? I have. I actually have prayed that in some sticky situations, asking our Blessed Mother to cover us because we're going in, you know? Sometimes we just need that. We need that that assurance that someone has got our back. Well, who better than our Blessed Mother, the Mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Mother of God, Theotokos. So if you do not seek the intercession of such a wonderful intercessor, then you know what? You're missing out on the faith. And I want to encourage you today to do that, to ask our Blessed Lady to pray for us. And so you're going to hear a lot on this show, on Behold the Man, of us asking our Blessed Lady to pray for us. So let's start this show by doing just that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Heavenly Father, glorious God, we come before you. We stand before you in awe to praise your holy name. I ask you to to protect this show, to give us the wisdom and the insight to dig deep into your sacred revelation that you will speak directly to our hearts. I pray for all those who listen to this show. I pray that they will be healed, that they will be forgiven, loved, and restored to full dignity as a child of the Most High. Reassure their hearts that they walk in great peace with you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit to be in their lives through the sacraments of the beautiful church that you founded. Give us this grace, this knowledge, this assurance of the hope that lies within. We seek this in your mercy, and we pray for the beautiful intercession of our beloved Mother. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. 
Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The 25th day of December, in the 5,099th year, in the creation of the world, from the time when God created the heavens and the earth, the 2,957th year after the flood, the 2,015th year from the birth of Abraham, the 1,510th year from Moses, and going forth of the people of Israel to Egypt the 1032nd year from David's being anointed king, in the 65th week, according to the prophecy of Daniel, and 194th Olympiad, and the 752nd year from the foundation of the city of Rome, the 42nd year in the reign of Octavius Augustus, the whole world being at peace, in the sixth age of the world, Jesus Christ, the eternal God and the Son of the Eternal Father, willing to consecrate the whole world with His merciful coming, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, and nine months having been passed since His conception, was born in Bethlehem in Judea of the Virgin Mary, being made man, the nativity of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. Wow! That's found on page 16 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises. But it's more likely that you will have heard that read to you at the Vigil Mass, the Midnight Mass at Christmas, uh, before we celebrate the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a great place for us to start, talking about the journey of salvation history and how that applies to each of our lives, yours and mine. It is a powerful way to get us started. Why? Because we can see in a nutshell the point to everything, all of creation, all the events, everything is leading up to that one magnificent point in time when God himself becomes incarnate. He takes on flesh. He lowers his dignity from that of divine to that of human, although he is perfectly divine and perfectly human all in one. He walks in our footsteps, so to speak. He takes on the mantle of being human and all of its challenges, and he shows us by exemplary action how to live our lives. That's the point of salvation history, because he is redeeming us. He is recreating what was created initially, but fell through Adam and Eve. He is untying that knot. And so that's where we begin. Why is this so important? Why do we, should we focus on that? What does this book have to teach us about the faith in that regard? I think the title of the book sums it up best, A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Now, you and I both know some, some man, maybe it's our own father, or maybe it's a father of a friend of ours. We all know a father who didn't keep his promises. I can, I can bet that my own kids would tell you of stories of how I have not kept some of my promises. 
God is not like that. God keeps his promises. He makes an oath. He keeps it. He makes you a promise. It comes to pass. He will keep his promises. When he spoke the light into existence, it came forth. When he calmed the seas, they went still. When God speaks, things happen because he keeps his promises. That's the difference between you and I. And you and I need to know that about God the Father. He is the perfect father, whereas I am not a perfect father. You see, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, we're told, Call no man on earth father, for you have but one father in heaven. Now, us Catholics, now we call our priest father. What gives? The Bible says not to. But it, actually, if you read the context of Matthew chapter 23, what you see is Jesus telling and criticizing the Pharisees and the scribes because they have the authority of the seat of Moses. They sit on the seat of Moses, but they squander this authority because they mislead the children, the people of Israel. You see, that's what a father is supposed to do. A father is supposed to lead his children, his family, to where? To God, to God in heaven. That's the point of a father. That's what a real father does. And as soon as I fail to do that, I am no longer worthy of the title father. That's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew 23, 5. Because he even says, call no man on earth teacher, call no man on earth master, call no man on earth, you know, all these things. But yet, we do have teachers, we do have masters, we do have rabbis in, in that language, we do have fathers. But it's when these people fail to do what they were created to do, what they were divinely inspired to do in their vocations as fathers, as masters and teachers, to lead them all to God, then that's when they lose the, the privilege of being called by these titles. See, God is a real father. We are just shadows of that fatherhood. We are to point to the reality, us being the symbol of fatherhood. Often when I've put my two my two and my uh, three-year-old, almost four-year-old to bed at night, my daughter, who will be four this coming August, said to me, but I, I want to see God. I want to hug God. And you know how sweet and cute that statement was. But I had to tell her, God sent me that you might hug me and thus hug God through me. I get to be God's hands and feet. I get to be God's flesh. I get to stand in for God in that way at that moment for my little children. I'm flesh. You know, I get to be used. My flesh gets to be used for God there. That's me pointing them to the Father in heaven. It's when I abuse that, when I misuse that and abuse my children by leading them anywhere else besides the God and Father in heaven, then I don't deserve to be called Father. So we call our priests Father proudly because their job is to lead us to heaven. Now, they aren't perfect men, are they? You and I both know of stories, of uh, situations, events, terrible atrocities. But you know what? These are men, and they deserve and need your prayers desperately. Pray for your priests and your bishops. Offer up sacrifices for them. They need it because anytime you take on the job, and the vocation of an ordained minister and the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are under constant attack by the devil. So pray for them, pray for them, that they might become men of God and that they might continue in their vocation of leading you to God, the father in heaven, thereby deserving the title of father, 
pointing to the reality of heaven. That's the point. That's where we want to get started. Because you and I both know of situations where God, men aren't perfect. But God wants to tell you, look, don't lose faith. Don't lose hope simply because you've been disappointed by earthly failures. Because God, he's the father who always keeps his promises. That's where we want to start. That's the, that's the image I want to place in your mind. And you can actually read on page 15 of chapter one, Kinship by Covenant, this concept that Dr. Han wants you to see. He wants you to know that there is a perfect father. That's the father in heaven. And this Bible of his, this sacred scripture is his love letter to his people and their family history. So there's some key concepts that in chapter one, we've got to set the stage for right out of the back. What is sacred scripture? Myth? Pure history? I don't know. We're going to talk about it. it wh how can we relate to this story? We're going to talk about that. So there's a lot of good concepts that we've got to get through in order to dive into some of the uh, covenants that were actually uh, created in scripture that we can actually read about. There are six of them, and we're going to get into those in future shows. But before we begin into that, Let's cover some of these basics. There's a lot to go through today and really not enough time. So if you haven't gotten your book, once again, go by my website, catholichack.com. Find the link on the show notes of Behold the Man, and you can pick up your copy today. Now, how perfect is the Bible really? Well, let me tell you, it fits perfectly like a, the pieces of a puzzle. On page 18, you can see how Scott Hodge is really trying to show you that the old and the new fit wonderfully together. And that leads us into a topic called typology. Typology is one of my absolutely favorite topics to talk about in sacred scripture, because it was this gift of typology that really opened my eyes to going back and diving deep. For example, if you read the narrative of Luke's gospel, chapter one, the infancy narrative, and you read from the Annunciation to the Nativity and beyond for our Lord, and you go back and you compare that to certain texts in the Old Testament, you see how this comes alive for you. It really will dance on the pages of scripture. Typology, these are Old Testament types, foreshadowings, leading to New Testament realities. And there is a great quote on page 21 that I'd like to read for you that might help you to understand the point of, um, of typology. Actually, it's on page 22 of chapter one. It says this, quote, this is the purpose and value of typology, which studies how Christ was foreshadowed in the Old Testament through Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Melchizedek, Passover lamb and temple, to name a few thereby revealing the profound unity of the Old and New Covenants. Thus, typology is what enables us to discern in God's works of the Old Covenant prefigurations of what he accomplishes, or accomplished rather, in the fullness of time, in the person of his incarnate Son. For example, Adam, he was in a garden and he committed a sin. What was his sin? He didn't trust in God to save him from this imminent threat of the devil attacking him and Eve. See, the devil was an intruder. And so he had a choice to make, save his skin or save his soul. You see, his job, according to Genesis chapter 2, was to protect, to keep and protect the garden and all that was in it. Eve was in it. 
He didn't protect the garden. He didn't protect Eve. He, he had to make a choice and he saved his skin and forsook his soul. And what happened? He was cast out of the garden and we see God coming, walking in the cool of the day, having to do sort of a, a confession. We'll get into that in future shows too. What do we see fast forwarding in another garden, Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord, who is described by St. Paul as the new Adam or the last Adam. He's also in a garden. He also has a choice to make. Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but thy will be done. He too must make a choice. Does he save his skin? Or does he save his soul, or rather, the souls of all of us? What's he choose? He cries out to the one who is powerful and able to save him. He cries, I, cries out with loud lamentations, unlike Adam, who was deathly silent in a garden. Our Lord was screaming to the top of his lungs in a garden. He undid what Adam did. That's the power of typology. We're going to get into that in much greater detail. I'm going to go blow for blow of what Adam did versus what Jesus did in the passion and the, in the garden narratives in a future show. But I wanted to give you a taste of typology. We can understand more about what Jesus Christ came to do for us in his passion, death and resurrection by understanding exactly what was going on in the Old Testament type. King David, he was the anointed one. He was the Greek word. He was Meshiach or Messiah, or that was the Hebrew word. Rather, the Greek word is Christ. It just means anointed one. He was an Old Testament type of a New Testament reality in Jesus Christ being the true Messiah, the true anointed one come to save us, come to redeem us, to conquer death and to conquer sin, to set us free from our sins. And you and I both know. There is nothing sweeter than to be set free from the slavery of sinfulness. So we see in typology this great gift, this great skill set and aptitude to really understand and be able to go back. When we read something in the New Testament to say, you know what, I'm willing to bet that if I go back in that Old Testament, I'll find something that's a type of this New Testament event or person, and I can learn something greater and deeper about that New Testament. And we actually see that. St. Paul gives us that same sort of effort in typology. When he references the Old Testament to give us the new. St. Luke did the same thing in the uh, Gospel of Luke. He, he references Second Samuel 6 to give us a comparison narrative about our Blessed Mother. Basically drawing us to the conclusion that she is the Ark of the Covenant, the New Covenant. And St. John in his book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that she is the Ark. Because in the last uh, verse of chapter 11, he says, I see, what do I see? I see the, the Ark of the Covenant in the sky. A great portent appeared, and behold, the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of 12 stars on her head. That's typology. Between St. Luke and St. John, drawing us from those Old Testament types, we know that our Blessed Mother is the Ark of the new covenant. She becomes the new Eve where Jesus is the new Adam. They're both undoing the knot that was tied in the garden. So it's very important typology and it's very deep and it's very profound. And I continue and encourage you to go digging, dig, dig, dig. It's very important. Now is the Bible myth or is it pure history? The answer is it lies somewhere in between. You see, a lot of so you get some folks who will say the Bible is just made up stories. It's a bunch of great stories. No, it's not. It's not stories. These are historical events. There's a lot of archaeological evidence that to suggest that. 
But that doesn't mean that the Bible is written like the front page of the newspaper, where first this happened, then that happened, then this happened. No, the Bible is not written that way. The ancient Hebrews, when they wrote the Old Testament, they didn't write scripture in that way. They didn't care about chronological events the same way modern historians do when they write history books. There was a different mindset when it, come, when it came to writing their stories. It wasn't chronology-centered. It was purpose-centered. What was the point of telling you the story? It wasn't the people weren't historical or the events weren't historical. It was they wanted you to come to a point. What did God want to say to you when he inspired the author to write this down? That's the point. So the church in its infinite wisdom, she teaches us to maintain the center road. It's not, it's not historically written where it's A, B, C, and D happened in this order. And it's not mythology either. These are people that were really lived. These are events that really occurred. The church reaffirms to us and humani generis. We're told that the, the Adam and Eve did exist. They were real. We, it'd be a sin and a heresy to say that we didn't come from uh, Adam and Eve. Even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ affirms this in the Gospels. So we must understand. That's another key point to understanding and diving deep in sacred scripture. That we must see the middle of the road. That we can dive and learn even more when we do it from a historical standpoint. For example, for me, it was the realization that I learned that I was reading scripture from a 21st century Westerner mindset. It was surface level. It was all just on this, this basic shallowness of a way of looking at scripture. I would read things ultra literally. And so if it said raining cats and dogs, for example, I would expect to see cats and dogs falling from the sky. But that wasn't the point. We must get to the point, the purpose that the author intended to give us. That's called context. And sometimes we must understand these things from a first century Jewish perspective. We're going to get a whole lot more when we do. So that's another very valuable point. So typology, understanding the point of how scripture was written, how we're supposed to take it. Two very critical issues that I want you to study more about. Now, in the remaining few minutes of the show, I want to talk about the differences between covenants and contracts. This is another great uh, part of this chapter, this first chapter, Kinship by Covenant, because in our modern society, you and I both hear this all the time. They think there is no difference between covenants and contracts. Often marriages are treated like contracts, which is why there's a divorce rate that skyrocketed in the last 50 years, because people have devalued marriage to the point where it, like anything else, can just, you know, be broken. Promises are broken all the time, right? wrong. A marriage isn't a contract. What is a contract? A contract is the exchange between parties of goods or services of equal value for the sake of economy. And often in a contract, you, you give a promise. You say, I give you my word and you sign your name on the contract. Contracts can be broken. There are provisions and clauses that often can stipulate how you can break a contract. Covenants rather. Covenants are much deeper, much more profound. They can't be broken the way a contract can be broken. What's the difference? A contract or a covenant rather is 
parties not exchanging goods or services of equal value. No, they exchange persons. I give you myself. I receive yourself to me. You give of yourself completely in a covenant. You exchange persons for the sake of economy? No, for the sake of family bonds. You see the difference? Covenants create and expand families. Contracts don't. Contracts expand economy. God is giving you family. The saints are your brothers and sisters. They go before you into the sacred beatific vision and they long for you to be there right next to them. John chapter 15. I want you to read that, study that. Our blessed mother, God gave her as our mother on the cross, gave it to all of us. Jesus Christ becomes our brother as we are adopted through him by the Lord. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. Sons of the Most High, adopted. And adoption isn't some symbolical sonship or symbolical daughterhood. No, adoption is real. Once you're adopted, you are the son. I have an adopted son. My oldest, he's adopted. He is my son. He is not like my son. He is not kind of a son. No, he is my son. He bears my name. He sits at my table and we share a meal. He sleeps under my roof. He lives by my rules. He, li- he works and lives and loves in this family. He is a son. You are a son of the Most High. How do you know? Do you not eat and share a meal? The very bread and wine, the blood and and body of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly present there in the Eucharist at his table. That's his table. You live in his house. You live by his rules. You love and you bear his name, the name of the Most High. That's how we know we are sons. So adoption isn't symbolical. It's reality. It's real. So covenants are far stronger and far more powerful than contracts. Stop thinking of your marriage, if you are married, like a contract. You swore an oath. You invoked God's name. You said, I swear, and you often place your hand on a Bible. Doctors, politicians, lawyers, soldiers, they all swear these oaths. They invoke curses and blessings in the oath. In the covenant process, we're going to be talking more about all of that. But even Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy. And he begs the people of Israel before they go off into to the, the land promised them. Before he goes off and dies, he begs them, choose life. Choose the blessings by keeping the covenant oath. Don't break your oath. But they inevitably they break their oath and God has to bring down the curses. Why? Because he made the promise and a God keeps his promises. Our father keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. He is a man or he is the man. He is God. He is the God of his word. You and I break our word all the time. God doesn't do that. So that is the key and fundamental difference between oaths and covenants. I want you to study more about that in A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Chapter 1. Just one real quick note before uh, we wrap up the show today. And oath swearing. In the earliest church, in the Mass, we can see signs of how the early Christians in their Mass were described as swearing an oath in the sacrament of the Eucharist. We can actually see this from a, a pagan source. Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was the governor of Pontus and Bithynia 
from 111 to 113 AD. He was a Roman governor, and he wrote a letter to his boss, the Emperor Trajan in Rome, asking, how do I deal with these Christians? You know, they're up to things that we don't really understand. We don't know what's going on. So I've, I've arrested some of them. I've tortured some of them. Am I doing right? What do you want me to do, my boss, Trajan? Well, Trajan responds to him. You can actually read these, and I'll post a link to it on my website at catholichack.com. But it's very important. In this, he actually describes, after interrogating Christians, he describes what they do in the Mass and how they bind themselves by oath. The word there in Latin, sacramentum. Our sacraments are are binding us by oath. We swear an oath. When we receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, what do we say? We say, Amen. I believe. I believe not only in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but in all that you teach and profess as the body of Christ, the church. I believe. Amen. We seal ourselves with that oath and receive that food. I want you to read this document. It's very small. You can read it very quickly from Plenty the Younger. Go to my website, catholichack.com, and pick that up. It is phenomenal. Awesome. We're going to have to pick up next time. In the meantime, stop by my website, catholichack.com, for more information and show notes for this episode as well as links to Sarah Bauer's stuff. Please, you can also give me a call at plus one seven one three five six eight sixty two seventy seven. That's plus one seven one three five six eight sixty two seventy seven. You can leave me a voicemail and I'll play it on the show. Follow me on Twitter at Catholic underscore hack. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. <laughs> <laughs>